verses 1 to 3. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you so much for this gift of the Lord's day. We pray that we would make good use of this gift that you have given us. We pray that your spirit would accompany and make effectual the preaching of your word this day. Father, we know and we rejoice in the fact that when we do not know how to pray, your spirit intercedes for us and your son sits at your right hand interceding for those whom he has purchased by his blood. And so, Father, we thank you for these gifts we thank you for these means of grace, and we pray that we would make good use of them this day. Bless now these few moments. And Father, would they fit us to live and walk the Jesus way in the midst of a world that knows very little about it? We pray this now in his name. Amen. So just what does it mean to be blessed? Does it mean that you have financial security? or even just the financial means to do whatever you want? Does it mean that you're in good health, that there's nothing major going on with you in return in regards to your physical well-being? Does it mean that you have good and healthy relationships, like, say, with your spouse, your kids, and your extended family? Does it mean that you're really good at and highly respected in your vocation or in your work. Is blessedness tied to the state of the nation in which you live? Or perhaps more importantly, is blessedness tied to the success of your favorite sports team? Are blessedness and happiness really just synonyms? Or is there something to this idea of blessedness that goes beyond happiness? Am I blessed only when I can say, I have everything I want? Last week, we begin our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus opens this majestic sermon, this manifesto of the kingdom, with a series of nine statements that cover eight different ideas about the blessed life. We know them as the Beatitudes. And as we make our way through them, I think we're going to discover something. Something that might be either, it's either going to be very freeing for us or it's going to be very troubling to us. And it's this. Jesus' notions of blessedness and our notions of blessedness, both inside and outside the church, are very, very different things. We need to begin this morning then with asking ourselves uh, what I hope is an oft-repeated question here at Grace Church. Who is king in my life? Well, I submit to King Jesus and his word as it relates to the nature of blessedness. 
Or will I reject this hard path of discipleship and substitute a kind of Jesus light or diet Jesus instead? Jesus is unpacking for us where true peace of mind lies and what goals are especially worth pursuing. In other words, Jesus is teaching us how we ought to spend and focus our lives. He's giving us kingdom priorities. And that's where it gets hard, isn't it? After all, I like to be the monarch of my own life. Thank you very much, Jesus. I can find my own peace of mind and I have my own goals to pursue. And so if Jesus can help me attain my goals and aid in my pursuit of peace of mind, well, then he's quite useful. But the moment that Jesus thinks he's going to set the agenda, the moment that he acts like the sovereign king, yeah, I'm not too sure I really like that. Which helps us understand then why Jesus begins the Beatitudes the way that he does. The Jesus way begins with repentance. It begins with an understanding that we are spiritually bankrupt. If we do not start there, then we are not on the Jesus way. Now, in just a minute, Matt's going to fix whatever's wrong. And uh, you're going to see in front of you the big idea. And the big idea for this morning, it's also in your bulletin. So pretend the screen doesn't exist. And instead, look meaningfully either at me or at your outline. Uh, and it's this, unless we have both the manner and mark of repentance, we don't know the Jesus way. Unless we have both the manner and the mark of repentance, we don't know the Jesus way. Three points we want to make this morning. The first one is this. We do need to imitate the manner of Jesus' engagement with the world. We need to imitate the manner of Jesus' engagement with the world. Matthew, if we think about Matthew's gospel as a whole for just a second, and not just the three chapters that constitute the Sermon on the Mount, we, we will see and we'll come to understand that Matthew is quite careful and intentional about how he has structured his gospel. Matthew mirrors the first five books of the Bible in that in the gospel of Matthew, we have five major teaching sections. And so Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, is the opening salvo of the first round of the five teaching sections that are in Matthew's gospel. So in other words, immediately after calling the first disciples, and we read about that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, and right on the heels of being driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, and uh, succeeding where the first Adam failed in terms of being tempted by the devil, Jesus is going to let his disciples know exactly what it means to follow him. If you are going to be Jesus' disciple, if you are going to call yourself a Jesus follower, if you are going to call yourself a Christian, then the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' own words defining for us what that life looks like. What does Jesus do? Well, we're told in verse 1, he sits down. 
His disciples come to him. He opens his mouth, which is a very Hebrew way of saying he's going to start preaching. And he teaches them. He sits down. He opens his mouth. And he gives, in essence, a lecture. Now, I'm not sure that's how you and I would go about it. We would start with some sort of marketing or media campaign. We would try to figure out a way to leverage our message with a select group of influencers. Not Jesus. Jesus sits down. He lets the disciples come to him. And then he begins to teach. Now, we don't want to miss the illusion that Matthew is making to an extraordinary passage in the Old Testament, namely Daniel chapter 7. See, when we read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we should uh, right away get in our mind this picture of, hey, wait a minute, I've read something like this before. For in Daniel chapter 7, we learn of four grotesque and frightening creatures who are rising up out of the four winds of the oceans in heaven, and they're going to try to overthrow God himself. They're trying to overthrow heaven itself. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, we read these words. Now remember, Daniel is seeing this vision, and these four grotesque beasts are coming out. They're breathing threats. They are intent on overthrowing God and overthrowing heaven. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, we see God's response to this great insurrection. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. The Ancient of Days took his seat. The Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, that's not what we would expect to read. We would expect to read that God makes a signal and some of the angels start ringing the bell. Or God goes to the gun cabinet, gets out what he needs to deal with the interlopers. No. The sovereign creator of the universe sits down. And in three verses, we learn that the creatures are defeated and their dead carcasses are given over to be burned in the fire. In response to this rebellion, in response to this resurrection, God sits down. He defeats his enemies. And then he does something very unique. He gives dominion, authority, glory, and an everlasting kingdom to the Son of Man. See, in Matthew chapter 5, these first two verses Matthew is letting us know that Jesus is doing what God always does. He sits. In the midst of a rebellious world, God sits, he opens his mouth, and he proclaims, he teaches. One of my uh, mentors in ministry, in fact, he was one of the supervisors of my PhD work, says this, Uh, Doug Webster writes, his open, speaking of Jesus, his open, non-anxious engagement with the world is a model for all those who seek to proclaim the good news. Let me read what Dougie Fresh said again. His open, 
non-anxious engagement with the world is a model for all those who seek to proclaim the good news. I wonder then why our method of engagement seems to be so very different. Presuming, of course, that we are indeed engaging the people who are around us. Why are we so anxious when we think about engaging our unbelieving culture to say nothing of our unbelieving friends and family? Why is there so often a note of anger mixed amidst our telling of the quote-unquote good news? Why do we have tones of triumphant arrogance when we speak of one who is gentle and lowly? Friends, the reason Jesus can sit down and wait for the disciples to come to him and open his mouth and teach is because he's the sovereign king. He knows who he is. But I fear sometimes we forget that. We forget that the king that we serve and the God that we worship is sovereign. And so we become angry. We become anxious. We are afraid. We are threatened because we've forgotten who Jesus truly is. And we've forgotten about the very nature of the universe itself. I love what the hymn writer says. We sang it this morning. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. We need to imitate the manner of Jesus' engagement with the world. Secondly, then, we have to answer this question. It's a question that we answered or that we asked in the introduction. What does it mean to be blessed? What is this word? It's the Greek word makarios. What does that, what does it mean? Does it simply mean to be happy? Does it simply mean that I like my circumstances? And therefore, if you asked me, I'd give my life a sort of double thumbs up, or at the very least, I could go sort of here. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, this word makarios is kind of a combination of two different ideas that we find in the Old Testament, which is not surprising because as we're going to see, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus preaching an application and explanation of things that the Old Testament already teaches us. And so one of the things that's going on when Jesus speaks of those who are blessed, he's calling us to a particular path. He's saying that the way to blessing is this way. Now we're going to see, we, there's an idea we have to have to balance that out. But in the Old Testament, and indeed in the ancient world, there was a kind of wisdom literature that gave itself to talking about what the good life looks like. What do virtuous people spend their time thinking about? How do they approach life? How do they live? How do they speak? That there was all the difference in the world between someone who was wise and someone who was foolish or someone who was virtuous and someone who honestly just didn't really care. And so Jesus, when in the Beatitudes, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's telling us that being poor in spirit is a path 
that we ought to pursue. That if we would be wise, if we would be virtuous, we need to pursue the kind of spiritual poverty that he's talking about. But there's another idea that we need to balance this out. For Jesus isn't giving us a kind of spiritual paint-by-numbers thing, a kind of works righteousness that says, well, get to be poor in spirit and you get to go to heaven. No, he's also, when he speaks of being blessed, he's also talking about an objective declaration from our sovereign king. Friends, blessing and the announcement and the pronouncement of blessing is something that only God can do. It's his universe. It's his world. He is the sovereign king, the sovereign ruler. I can announce, I can pronounce God's blessing, but I cannot force or manipulate him into blessing you. There's nothing we can do to force or manipulate God into blessing us. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and blessed are the merciful, and blessed are the pure in heart, and blessed are the peacemaker. He's letting us know that this is a path that we are to pursue. And as we are on that path then, God the Father has said, I will bestow my blessing on those who are walking this path. We cannot force it. We cannot manipulate it. But God is both declaring and inviting to his people, this is what the good life looks like. So the first thing, the first step on this path to blessing, on this path that we need to pursue if we would be wise and virtuous, is that we're called to pursue spiritual poverty. We're called to pursue spiritual poverty. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is preaching the Old Testament. See, we do not have to come with our own understanding of what it means to be poor in spirit. In the same way, we don't have to do it with any of the Beatitudes. We don't have to let the culture define what it means to be meek. We do not have to let the culture define what it means to be merciful. No, the Bible has already done those things for us. Our Old Testament reading for this morning unpacks for us very well what it means to be poor in spirit. I hope you noted that right off the bat, The psalmist's cry was that God would deal with him from his mercy. Not that God would give him what he is owed. Not that God would give him his just deserts. But that God would be merciful to him. Why? Because the psalmist used words like reproach, shame, and dishonor. And that's not the only place in the Old Testament that we find those kinds of sentiments. It's in Isaiah 57. 
It's in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 7. But this is the one to whom I will look to the humble and contrite in spirit who trembles at my word. In other words, Jesus is both calling us to pursue and he's also pronouncing blessing on those who feel their spiritual poverty. Those who are suffering and feel crushed by their lack of means when it comes to approaching God. Now, let's be clear this morning. This is not self-help. This is not a little Jesus goes a long way. Keep your finger in Matthew chapter 5, but turn with me to Luke chapter 18. For in Luke chapter 18, we have this wonderful parable about what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5. If you want a parable to sum up what it means to be poor in spirit, this, this is, the Bible interprets the Bible, so here we go. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, right away, he's telling us, you want to know what the opposite of poor in spirit is? Here it is. If you trust in yourself that you're righteous, and therefore you can look down on others and treat them with contempt, you're not poor in spirit. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, do you hear both the declaration and the invitation? Do you hear in the parable the declaration? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. That is Jesus' declaration. The invitation then is implied. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There is both declaration and invitation. As Jesus tells us that the way of being his follower is that we do not trust in ourselves that we are righteous. And we cannot then treat others contempt. We need then to pursue this kind of poverty. All around us, we're told that we're okay. 
We're told that the answer is within us. We're told that we have within ourselves the resources to lead a virtuous and meaningful and significant life. Now, if you think about it, that's a really schizophrenic thing that the world does. Because we live in a world that says, hey, uh, you and I are here as a result of the product of time and chance. It's an accident. And so your being here, well, if the whole thing's an accident, then why are you looking for any meaning or anything that's sort of transcendent and meaningful in an entire place that's just an accident? But you're a super person. You've got it all together. You're an accident. But you're a double thumbs up accident. So feel good about life. And the Bible says something entirely different. The Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That we are the pinnacle of God's creation. And we've been called to a task that nothing else in creation has been called to. And to that task, we cannot trust in ourselves. For unrighteousness. No, rather, instead, we need to learn the lesson of Isaiah 62 that we would be humble and contrite in spirit, that we would tremble at God's word. When you became a member of Grace Church, for those of you who are members, you acknowledged the truth of what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. You professed that you were poor in spirit. We've been meeting with our deacon candidates. In fact, we met this morning, and uh, Kyle Thomas walked us through uh, both the membership vows and then uh, relevant sections of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And I hope if you have uh, one of these in your Bible, it's the, the five membership questions or if you have it somewhere, I would just encourage you this afternoon, uh, read over again the very first question in your membership vows. Here it is. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? Kind of sounds like our Old Testament reading for this morning, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like Isaiah 62. Sounds almost dead up, like the prayer of the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. Friends, the Jesus way means we do not think too highly of ourselves. And we do not trust in ourselves for our own righteousness. But rather, we acknowledge that we are sinners in the sight of God. That what we rightly deserve is his displeasure. And if God does not have mercy on us, we have no hope. The table this morning reminds us of how deep the Father's mercy for his people really and truly is. That God, in his love for us, sent his son to take our place. 
that God in His mercy required His Son, and He did require it, or Jesus' prayer at Gethsemane makes no sense. He required that Jesus' blood would be shed and His body would be broken. And so when we come this morning to the table, we don't come because we think we have righteousness somehow whipped. We come to the table understanding that we need a righteousness that's not our own. And we come to the table not because we've earned our place through our good works. No, we come to the table because God has been merciful to us. And in His love, and in His grace, and in His undeserved favor, He calls us who were once His enemies, His sons and daughters, and He invites us to come to the family table and to eat with Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for the mercy that You have lavished upon us through Your Son, Jesus. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we think we can somehow manipulate your blessing. Forgive us for the ways in which we view this as a game to be played. It's a system that we can, we can somehow rig. Lord, by your word and through your spirit, help us to see that our great need is that of mercy. We cannot earn our place. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we act like the Pharisee. And we pray that you would continue to cultivate within us the spirit of contrite repentance and humility that marked the tax court. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.